This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello. Welcome to the New Books in Latin American Studies podcast. I'm your host, Ari Barbalat. Today, I am blessed to be in dialogue with Christina Heatherton. We will be discussing her newly published book, Arise, Global Radicalism in the Era of the Mexican Revolution, published in Berkeley, California by University of California Press, 2022. Christina is the Elting Associate Professor of American Studies and Human Rights and the director of the Trinity Social Justice Institute at Trinity College in Hartford, Connecticut. Christina, thank you for your time, and thank you for this masterpiece. Oh, Ari, thank you. It's a total pleasure to be here speaking with you. Can you kindly tell us about yourself? Where did you grow up? What formative events in your life inspired the scholar you are today and the scholar you would become as an adult? Sure, I'll do my best. I, um, uh, as you can see, but the listeners can't see, I have a lot of gray hairs. I've lived a long life and um, it's hard to pick a few events, but maybe I'll say this. I uh, was born in New York City. Um, I grew up in California and spent a long time driving between um, Northern and Southern California. And just to kind of give you a marker in time, when we started driving in the uh, early mid eighties, um, by the time we got to Los Angeles, there were always a ton of bugs on the windshield. And uh, probably about a decade later, there weren't. And, um, you know, uh, Dick Walker, the geographer talks about just the expansion of commercial agriculture and the use of pesticides. So, you know, that was something that we saw in real time, the disappearance of of those kind of bugs. Um, another thing that I saw on those travels was, uh, you know, the growth of the archipelago of prisons in California. Um, 
as Ruth Wilson Gilmore talks about, uh, there was a massive prison building boom throughout the state in the 80s. And so I really grew up in Southern California amidst intensely far right, tough on crime legislation, anti-migrant politics. Um, and I had family swept up in it in both ways, both very, you know, far right people, as well as people who were swept up into the uh, prison industrial complex. Um, so I was lucky to be able to take classes in geography uh, at UC Berkeley and make sense of a lot of that. Uh, Ruthie Gilmore was my teacher on 9-11 and, you know, really helped put everything that I was trying to make sense of in California into a global context. And I was always taught to think globally about things that seemed really local. Um, I'll, I'll say one other thing, which is that my family, um, I was mostly raised by my mother, whose parents were second generation Okinawan and Japanese. And when we moved to Los Angeles, I was surrounded by my cousins who are Ecuadorian and Puerto Rican and Mexican and Chinese, Korean, African American, you know, my family looks like Los Angeles. And um, uh, once I was doing an oral history with a relative about the Japanese American internment, um, and uh, one of my great uncles told me this really wild story about his father, who was from Okinawa, who had come to the United States. Um, and, uh, you know, to make a long story short, in the process of telling me this story about how his father was rounded up, he said, well, you know, uh, he had been down in Mexico fighting with Pancho Villa. And so when these federal agents showed up his, at his door, he knew how to take care of business and he fought back. Uh, and so there was always this real puzzle for me about my own family, about its relationship to the Mexican Revolution. Um, and I suppose, you know, growing up in California, trying to understand that in a global context. What inspired you to write this book? What message do you hope to convey to readers? Yeah, well, you know, a lot of my work has been in dialogue with social movements. So, um, you know, before this, I co-edited a book called Policing the Planet, Why the Policing Crisis Led to Black Lives Matter. I've done some readers about housing and displacement struggles, also in a global context. So, you know, I suppose that um, all of my work is driven by those kind of conversations and also by the sense that we don't have to give up, <laughs> that there's ways we can find collective and collaborative strength from each other, that we can build on the social movements that, uh, you know, have have brought us, uh, you know, to this moment, to the possibilities that we have. Um, and uh, I, I guess I would say one other thing, which is that... Um, my, my stepmother, um, for most of her life was a flight attendant. And for a few years, I was able to fly for free as her daughter. And at the time I was working with a number of, uh, housing, uh, activist groups who were fighting displacement in Northern California. And we were thinking about a lot of different sites, uh, you know, that had comparative struggles. There were places in Oregon, in Kentucky, in London, in Japan. And when they found out that I had this ability to travel and to speak with other organizers, they encouraged me to go and talk to people um, and also figure out how the struggles were all linked. 
You know, I mean, sometimes people who are fighting displacement, say, in Spanish Harlem, understood that the company that owned that block of housing was based in London. So, you know, people who are fighting housing, which often seems like a very local issue, understood that there were global uh, reverberations. And um, I ended up in England and was a part of a, a radical history group there. Um, and so... Uh, a lot of my grounding in social history, in, um, you know, thinking about the ways that people historically have worked together to change the world really came out of uh, that experience. And so, you know, I, I feel like all of those elements, trying to think globally, trying to think about um, history from below and trying to think about how we give and take collective power to each other is something that I'm trying to uh, reinforce with this book. What are the primary themes in your book? What story does your book tell? Sure. Well, so this book, um, Arise, is about internationalism. It's about uh, traditions of internationalism that are related to the Mexican Revolution. And the kind of key concept in the book is convergent spaces. So these are sites within which different revolutionary traditions were compressed together and where people produced new articulations of struggle. So the book follows different convergent spaces. I'm thinking both about farm worker strikes at the U.S.-Mexico border or art collectives in Chicago, Harlem, and Mexico City, or Leavenworth Federal Penitentiary, where a number of Mexican revolutionaries were incarcerated. Um, and in each of these spaces, I'm interested in thinking about the influence of the Mexican Revolution, how it helped uh, stage a significant set of convergences within which another trajectory of internationalism can be traced. So, um, so yeah, so I that's a summary of the book. <laughs> can you offer a basic summary of the course of events that transpired in the Mexican Revolution? Because there are many actors and many phases, can you sure. share a synopsis of what transpired at the yeah. level of a beginner so that listeners who may not have background would be able to comprehend and have some context? Absolutely. Well, this is a very basic bare bones sketch. So, you know, it's a very complicated event that incorporates a number of different forces, a number of different regional struggles, but the kind of bare bones uh, look something like this. The Mexican Revolution is uh, often narrated as an event that breaks out in 1910, where opposition coalesced against the president, whose name is Porfirio Diaz. He ruled over the country for over three decades uh, in an increasingly dictatorial regime. And this is a period that's called the Porfiriato. Uh, so, um, you know, different scholars have different interpretations, uh, but there's a general consensus that a number of the transformations that happened during the Porfiriato led to unrest throughout different sectors of the country. So, uh, you know, the country is modernized in this period. You have remote territories that are connected to growing urban areas through new roads and rails. Goods are moved through trains, ports, and pipelines. There's a massive investment of new uh, foreign capital in factories, mines, industrial agriculture. Uh, and so you see things like the mass dispossession of the peasantry, 
uh, you have the exploitation of industrial workers, which also included renters and sex workers. There's a middle class, a growing middle class that's inc you know incredibly frustrated with their lack of political representation. Remember, Porfirio Diaz is in power for you know over three decades. There are fractions among the elites. There are foreign investors who are wary of the turmoil, and increasingly the government is cracking down on a lot of the unrest with an iron fist with the use of, uh, uh, you know, uh, military and federal police. So you have, um, uh, you know, this is kind of a cauldron, uh, which explodes in revolution in 1910, but it's really important to understand the revolution, not just in a national context, right? It's, uh, it's as much as it's a national story about, uh, land and freedom for Mexicans by Mexicans. It's also a global story. The conditions that led to the Mexican Revolution were not unique to Mexico in the period. They just uniquely exploded in revolution. Uh, you know, what is arguably the first major social revolution of the 20th century. There were a lot of countries, per, per, particularly throughout the Americas, that were pulled into the frenzy of finance capital in the late 19th century. There's similarly mass dispossession, loss of subsistence agriculture, you know, the unmooring of people from previous modes of production. Um, you know, and so you have both a number of migrants, of prisoners, and a number of rebels. Uh, and so, um, you know, in the book, I'm trying to think about the Mexican Revolution in a global context. I'm also trying to think about the development of U.S. capital and U.S. hegemony in relationship to it. Uh, you know, by the outbreak of the revolution, over a quarter of all U.S. investment lay in Mexico. U.S. financiers owned over 80 percent of Mexican mineral rights. You know, basically U.S. entities own more of Mexico's surface than Mexican entities. And the first time the U.S. becomes a creditor nation, it's in Mexico. So, you know, I could say more about this, but I just want to be sure to, you know, uh, that, that your listeners understand that there is... Uh, a story about the Mexican Revolution that often rehearses this idea that it is contained and nationalist, that it's just something that's relevant to the history of Mexico. And as a lot of Mexican historians like Daniel Carrasco uh, are pushing people to see, this was a global story. This is a part of global transformations. And anybody who lives in North America has to understand its relationship to the development of U.S. capital and U.S. hegemony. Can you elaborate on the concept of convergence space? You alluded to it earlier on. I'd be grateful if you can explain in more detail how this concept helps us understand the Mexican Revolution. Sure. Well, the idea of convergence space, again, is these are socio-spatial sites where different political tradition are compressed together and where people produce uh, new iterations of struggle, new articulations of struggle. And so, you know, by that, I am, maybe I could tell a story. <laughs> uh, uh, you know, part of, um, part of what spurred me to look into this, as I mentioned before, was this, you know, oral history I tried to do with one of my relatives about Okinawans in Mexico and the Mexican Revolution. 
And when I went to go and look for uh, some something to verify his recollection, what I found was a memoir by an Okinawan immigrant called Ima no Iwa, an immigrant sorrowful tale, which tells the story of a man named Paul Kochi who travels from Okinawa uh, into California through revolutionary Mexico. And on the way, he, uh, he's, he, he, he tells a story about coming to understand internationalism. So, you know, the, the ship briefly docks in Hawaii and he notices how the first class passengers are all like laughing and jeering at these native, uh, Kanaka Maoli Hawaiians that are unloading and loading the ship and they're throwing pocket change just to watch him dive. And, you know, he, he feels this profound sense of solidarity. He understands with that position. He understands that insult. Uh, he goes to California and this is the period of Asian exclusion. So nobody who's from any Asian countries is allowed off the boat, uh, you know, and he's thinking with all the Indian and Chinese and other Japanese passengers about that insult. And, you know, he witnesses some acts of violence and, um, you know, he also thinks about the native people in California and tries to square how anybody could, uh, you know, bar a person from a country, uh, it, you know, that were themselves uh, settlers. And so, you know, he it's this beautiful kind of travel log of his trip through these different places. And he ends up uh, jumping off the ship or escaping the ship with a friend of his. And they go through revolutionary Mexico. And he describes that it's there that he discovers internationalism. You know, he's there in jails. He's there on the run. He's there meeting with other migrants that are trying to escape the chaos of the global economy in 1917. Um, and so, you know, I... In these different spaces, he's always talking about how he's bringing his own experiences of of being from Okinawa, of experiencing Japanese colonialism there, um, and kind of squaring it with other people's experiences from different places, from different radical traditions. Uh, and, you know, there's a really beautiful way where in order to make sense of their situation, they have to come to understand each other. And so convergence space is just a way of articulating that process and that practice. What I found in my research was that anytime there was a struggle, you know, whether it was formally uh, the organizing of farm workers in a strike in Southern California among Filipino, Black, Mexican, and poor white uh, farm workers, or whether it was a, you know, an action within a prison like Leavenworth Federal Penitentiary, what you had in every instance where people coming together from different radical traditions, you know, trying to make sense of things, trying to understand where each other were coming from, and in the process, producing new revolutionary theory, strategy, and tactics. So I, you know, I don't think that this is something novel or new, but I don't know if we always have the best way to conceptualize this practice. And so convergence space is my term to help just, uh, understand, articulate how this happens. Can you explain the lyrics and meaning of the song, The International by Eugene Poitier? Can you 
tell us about the circumstances of his life. What inspired him to write this song? Sure. Well, you know, the um, the song is uh, very important for the book. The book is called Arise. It takes the first word uh, the, of the, the first uh, word of the first lyrics of the International Arise You Prisoners of Starvation. Uh, the song was written, as you said, by a man named Eugene Poitier, who uh, was um, a uh, he was a participant in the Paris Commune, and I think you know this song is recognized by many people as uh, an anthem of um, internationalism. Uh, Sorry. Uh, but I think it's really important to reiterate that it's a song that comes out of defeat. So Poitiers did not write this in the kind of jubilant celebrations of the commune itself, you know, this like temporary workers and gover government that the workers of Paris installed and self-organized in 1871 uh, in Paris. This is a song that he wrote. This is a poem that he wrote after seeing thousands of his comrades slaughtered in the streets. Uh, and as uh, Kristen Ross and other historians of the event have discussed, you know, people at the time of the commune understood that the colonial violence, French colonial violence that was happening far away in places like, uh, uh, you know, Senegal or in Mexico, uh, you know, were basically coming home, the, the blood spilled on the streets of Paris was the same, uh, you know, as the blood being spilled in those other colonial contexts. So Poitiers, you know, was uh, exiled along with a number of other people who weren't massacred in the commune. And it's a gorgeous poem. It's a, it's a testament to his friends and his comrades and to the spirit of the Internationale. Uh, and, you know, I mean, I think there's a commonsensical way that we attach it to struggles for internationalism, but that wasn't a, a you know a foregone conclusion. There were a number of other songs that people sang, but this was the one that galvanized people in strikes and struggles, particularly in the late 19th into the early 20th century. Uh, you know, I just talked to a, a young woman whose grandparents were part of the Bread and Roses strike in Massachusetts in 1912, where immigrant workers who were on strike all sang the international together in their different language and there's this beautiful kind of resonance harmony and dissonance all happening at once so um you know it's a very important song uh and i and i'm very moved by different authors who have taken lyrics from the song uh in order to make sense of the struggle for internationalism in their own time so you know the lyrics begin arise you prisoners of starvation arise you wretched of the earth and most famously france fanon you know took that second lyric wretched of the earth to think about uh anti-colonial struggles uh, uh, against French colonialism in Algeria and beyond for his book, Wretched of the Earth. And in the conclusion, I talk a little bit about one of the characters in my story, Dorothy Healy, who, uh, you know, who told her oral historian, Maurice Isherman, that if she ever wrote a memoir, she wanted it to be called Traditions Chains have bound us. So the lyric in the international goes, no more traditions change shall bind us. But she wanted to change it to traditions chains have bound us. And she was really thinking about 
the the forces that led her to leave the communist party and she said once a revolutionary tradition stops questioning stops thinking about the world around it you know loses the kind of vibrant connection uh, with people and struggles once it becomes something calcified once it becomes dogma it's no longer revolutionary um, and so I guess that was something that I wanted to recover for this book, the fact that internationalism is an ongoing, living, active process that has to be rebuilt, re-nourished, re-interrogated with every generation. Can you say more about Dorothy Healy? Why is she important in the history of the Mexican Revolution? Can you describe her legacy and her biography? Sure. Well, Dorothy Healy was probably one of the most famous communist uh, leaders in California. Like I said before, she left the party. Uh, she came from a radical family. And um, the story I tell in the book is this very interesting period where she was simultaneously an organizer in Los Angeles of the unemployed councils. So these were councils during the Great Depression of unemployed people, you know, for people in the United States, it's a period I think that resonates a lot with our own. There was extreme massive unemployment. There was no help from the federal government and the communist party was organized unemployed people into different councils for political power, to resist eviction, for survival, and just for some basic dignity. You know, people were hunting pigeons in Los Angeles for food. So she was a very young organizer in Los Angeles. She was like 19 and uh, in the uh, early 1930s, and she was organizing among, um, you know, uh, unemployed people, tenants, a lot of women who were the head of tenants unions and uh, unemployed councils. And uh, in the 1930s, you know, when we think about radicalism in this period, a lot of times we think about the general strikes of 1934, these major industrial actions, but we don't always think about the fact that coterminous with that, and also a little bit before there were these massive industrial, uh, massive strikes by agricultural workers, by farm workers, particularly in California, the, you know, the, the, up until that point, these were the greatest, uh, strikes, uh, agricultural strikes that had happened in the state's history. And the Communist Party was uh, asked to be a part of a number of those strikes. And uh, some of the farm workers in the Imperial Valley in Southern California near the U.S.-Mexico border, where my family's from, um, asked for help from the uh, from the party. And they sent uh, Dorothy Healy and some other organizers. And so, you know, I kind of trace her path through California across the capitalist landscape, you know, and think about how she goes from the unemployed organizing in the city to these farm worker struggles in the Imperial Valley. And through her oral history and through the records of other people that were a part of those strikes, you know, I come, I, I, like came to discover this really interesting convergence space of how, you know, people were taking different uh, radical traditions and different experiences 
to make sense of this uh, strike uh, among lettuce workers. So, you know, just to kind of like encapsulate one story, Healy talks about in her oral history that she's this young, fiery organizer. She's meeting with all of these uh, farm workers. A number of them are from Mexico. She's talking to them about exploitation. She's talking to them about organizing and political struggle. And she says she noticed that the workers started to engage her with a kind of polite indulgence. They started folding their arms and kind of nodding their heads slowly, like they weren't listening. And at a certain point, you know, she stopped talking and they were like, look, we just went through a revolution. We we understand what's what. When you're ready, you tell us where to go and we'll be there. And, you know, uh, scholars like Deborah Weber and others have talked about how formative the experience of the Mexican Revolution was to those agricultural strikes. And so I'm really interested in telling the story about how different forces came together, how they thought about the Mexican Revolution and how they brought those struggles uh, to a struggle against capital in Southern California. Can you describe the legacy and biography of Alexandra Kolontai? What role did she play in the events that you document in this study? Sure. Well, Kalantai is a really interesting figure. She's a self-described Bolshevik feminist. Uh, there's been a rediscovery of her and her work as of late. You know, there's a lot of people asking questions about revolution, the family, gender, sexuality, uh, and the role of the state. And in all of this, Kalantai is a, a fascinating precursor. You know, it's it's amazing to find somebody a century ago who was writing things that still feel very fresh and revolutionary today. So uh, Kalantai was a arguably one of the first women ever appointed to a state cabinet position. She served under Lenin uh, in the Soviet Union as a commissar of social welfare. Um, so she's not normally thought about in relationship to Mexico, but for a very brief period between the end of 1926 and the middle of 1927, she served as the diplomat, the Soviet diplomat to Mexico. Um, so every chapter in the book is, you know, named after a, a process, how to make a university, how to make a flag, how to make history. And this chapter is called How to Make Love. And so I go through Kalantai's diplomatic record. She kept a diary. There were a number of articles written about her in the period. Um, a lot of people who encountered her wrote about her. And so I think about what it meant for somebody who was a part of the imagination and construction of a new revolutionary state to be in a country that's also building a new revolutionary state with all of its contradictions. And what I was really interested was how she was thinking about the same questions that preoccupied her in Russia in Mexico. So how was she thinking about women and gender? How was she thinking about orphans? How was she thinking about the disabled, the injured, uh, the divorced, the elderly? This was her charge in Moscow to think about the sectors of the state that that normally fall out of the protection of the heteronormative family. So, you know, this chapter, How to Make Love, really deals with her conception of comrade love, a counterpoint to what we might think of as property love, a love that's enshrined uh, by uh, capitalist uh, property notions. Um, but I want to think about what that meant in a different revolutionary context, how she brought her radical experiences um, you know, in the Soviet Union to Mexico and what sort of conversations transpired. 
Can you tell us about Jose Martinez and Roy Tyler? Why are they significant? Sure. Well, you know, the idea of a convergence space really came about while I was in the National Archive Central Plains region in Kansas City, Missouri. Uh, you know, I was sitting there because I knew that there had been some Mexican revolutionaries who had been arrested and sent to what was the largest federal prison uh, in the United States at the period, Leavenworth Federal Penitentiary in Kansas. But in the process of looking at those records and seeing records that were nearby or records of prisoners who were somewhat related, I came to find that there was a whole universe of radicalism in that penitentiary. So during World War One, uh, you know, there were f new federal legislation passed. Uh, you know, most prominently the uh, Espionage and Sedition Acts, which made political dissent into a federal crime. So you had kind of everybody who was anybody: Mexican revolutionaries, anarchists, communists, pacifists, socialists. Indian nationalists, Mexican revolutionaries, all in this prison together. And they were doing what radicals do. And, you know, it, when they were organizing together, they were educating each other and looking into the records, you could see these were the classes that they were teaching. These were the books they were trading. These were the conversations they were having. Um, you know, a Department of Justice report around the period called Leavenworth a university of radicalism because they had this problem with soldiers getting, uh, soldiers and other people getting sent to Leavenworth as so-called criminals and leaving as organizers. There were so many people leaving as organizers. This was actually a problem that the federal government was looking into. So in How to Make a University, I tell the story of a number of the people who passed through. You know, I think this was one of the most concrete conversion spaces that I found in my research. Uh, and I think it's a really extraordinary story. The prisoners built a university. They had their own prison newspaper. They were giving lectures to each other. They were organizing. They're thinking about different revolutionary contexts together. Um, but, you know, one, somebody who has had a big impact on me is Marcus Redeker, and he describes that the tradition of history from below uh, means that when you want to find the histories of working class people, when you want to find the histories of whom history is rarely written, you have to go into the places where their records are kept, right? Sometimes that means the welfare roles. Sometimes that means uh, the prisons. And so in following some radical leaders that were easily identifiable, like Ricardo Flores Magón, uh, like Bill, Bill Haywood, I came to find the records of other working class prisoners who weren't as prominent. And two of them were Roy Tyler and Jose Martinez. So, you know, I think it's a really interesting story that I don't want to completely spoil for your listeners, but these are two men who, given the conditions of the moment, uh, given the ways that solidarity was being produced at the time and in this prison, they should have been allies, right? Roy Tyler was an African-American man who was a part of the Houston mutiny. He had experienced profound white supremacist violence. Uh, Jose Martinez, uh, you know, was a Mexican uh, man who had also fought in World War I. He was also a soldier. He had also experienced extraordinary violence. They find each other in the same prison 
among all these radical figures among this whole university of radicalism but instead of becoming um instead of becoming comrades they become enemies and so uh, part of the story I tell in this chapter are about solidarities, how they're built, but also how they're not guaranteed. As I say in the book, they then as now have to be organized. Why, in your view, is the internationalist history of the Mexican Revolution insufficiently remembered in contrast with the internationalist history of the Spanish Civil War, which is significantly more so? Sure. Um, well, I think it's a really interesting comparison and historians like David Struthers have actually isolated some events during uh, the revolution and in the lead up to the revolution as like, you know, uh, as the precursors to the Spanish Civil War and the international brigades. So, for example, there was a really interesting um battle in San Diego that the industrial workers of the world, the IWW and the PLM, the Partido Liberal Mexicano out of Mexico, you know, made a call, said international people of the world, we, we you know, we, we have to fight together and international brigades, well, a few international people came and Struthers says, like, you know, ask the same question that you're asking, right? Why don't we think about this radical context and internationalism the same way that we think about the Spanish Civil War? So, you know, this is an important question. These are two different um, political contexts and political periods. Uh, you know, there was a lot of concerted effort to promote the Spanish Civil War as a conjoined struggle against fascism that, uh, you know, basically anybody who opposed fascism across a wide spectrum of the left and even people who didn't necessarily identify as the left uh, could be a part of. And so a lot of our inheritance of the internationalism of the Spanish Civil War, I think, comes out of its um, the way we remember it in that moment. Uh, so, you know, the Mexican Revolution, uh, you know, I, I think doesn't have that exact same character, uh, you know, so, you know, on one hand, there's a lot of ways that we, I, I think, almost have a secondhand sense of the internationalism related to the Mexican Revolution. I think, you know, even if people haven't thought about the history, they've, you know, they can recognize the murals of Diego Rivera and David Alfaro Siqueiros and Frida Kahlo, her paintings, you know, they've appeared in so many radical contexts. Uh, you know, people might have, people might have seen the friggin' movie by Salma Hayek, Frida, about Frida Kahlo, you know, and recognize all the different Inter, uh, international figures from the Italian photographer Tino Modotti uh, to John Reed, uh, you know, that Sergei Eisenstein to Leon Trotsky, you know, internationals that were in Mexico City during the revolution thinking about it. Um, and there were also radicals throughout the Caribbean and the Americas who found shelter and support in Mexico. Jose Carlos Maria Tegue uh, uh, from Peru, Carlos Mea from Cuba, Augusto Sandino from Nicaragua. Um, so, you know, there's, I feel like a, a way that there's almost a commonsensical association between internationalism and the Mexican Revolution, but it's certainly not in the way that we would imagine the Spanish Civil War. 
Um, I would say, I mean, there's there's a lot I think about this question and, and a lot about, you know, in the book, in one of the chapters, I spend a lot of time just thinking about how do we even conceptualize internationalism, you know, like why is why is it the Spanish Civil War in the in the 30s, in the 1930s, and not the Haitian Revolution? That's our kind of lodestar for thinking about internationalism. Um so, you know, there's a lot of different uh uh you know. Uh, hypotheses I could offer, but I will just say this, Mexico has been and continues to be the source of U.S. wealth, of U.S. capital, of U.S. labor, of ideas, uh, and the racism uh, that's implicit in the way that we are taught about Mexico, about Mexican people, is directly related to an ongoing legacy of theft uh, and extraction. And so part of the reason we don't think about the Mexican Revolution on par with the Spanish Civil War, I think, has a lot to do with endemic racism towards Mexico and Mexican people. How does your book advance our understanding of solidarity? Yeah, well, um, I I think one of the things that I tried really hard uh, to demonstrate in the book is that, you know, as people smarter than me have said, we don't come to struggles. We don't come to solidarity the way that nations come into temporary alliances for battle. I think sometimes there's a kind of, uh, a stultifying sense that we are uh, prefabricated categories who can enter into certain temporary alliances for different struggles. Uh, and I think the history of the world, the history of social struggle, the history of solidarity is a lot messier because people are a lot messier than that you know we're we're much more fluid people uh i think that you know the book tries to open up other ways of you know histories of how people have engaged the world how they've come to understand themselves differently in the course of struggle uh you know that politics is not just the moving of chess pieces around of like you know, people with prescripted, uh, you know, movements and capacities. It's something that's built, that's collectively realized, that it's organized. And I feel like at this particular moment, that's something more needed than ever. Uh, you know, I mean, a, a lot of people talk about neoliberalism as this kind of prison of the unending present, you know, and I feel like we're People feel pretty trapped between the fact that capitalism can't even develop on its uh, promises. You know, people don't believe in this country anymore that if you just work hard, you'll be okay. You know, I mean, people work extremely hard and they're barely getting by. But I also think that we have a dearth of histories of how people have built alternatives together. Sometimes we do inherit some prefabricated ideas of what those look like. And so part of what I wanted to do with this book was just open that up a little bit and say, you know, people in other periods have had to deal with a lot of uncertainty. 
They've had to learn how to collaborate with each other. They've had to learn how to build with each other. They've had to be open and vulnerable and make things anew. And if they could do it, then we can do it now. There's a quotation that I'd be curious to ask you about. On page 183, you write as follows. There are no easy answers, no trans-historical traditions, no unblemished heroes, no no easy victories. Asserting that any historical process is merely the result of historical precedent unwittingly transforms analysts into apologists for power. The inheritance is a question rather than an answer. Here is a future where we might arrive. How shall we get there from here? As this book observes, the makers of 19th and 20th century internationalism were shaped by where they came from, what they saw, who they met, what they experienced, and how they came to understand the world anew. To understand this process is an invitation to do the work of making, to make collective sense of the world in struggle to defy its otherwise meaningless singular suffering. It is not by moral outrage alone that people have lent their lives to the struggle for better worlds. Neither is it by the purity of instruction from theory. There is no, there is certainly no royal road, only the one made by walking. Many have walked, many have been forced to move, many have found roads while others, many have found roads while walking with others. This book has attempted to map some of that movement in hope of making future roads possible. History is not a guide, but a map drawn in the stars of past lights. Out of the prison of the present is a recognition. We have been warmed by other fires that we have not built. What warmth and light shall we leave behind? Can you expound on this passage for us? I really appreciate you reading that, Ari. That's the final paragraph or two paragraphs of the book, uh, you know, where I guess I try to step on the gas a little bit and step out of a more diplomatic kind of tone as a historian and and try to say a little bit about what I think the stakes of recovering this history is. Um, you know, I, I hope the paragraph speaks for itself a little bit. But uh, I think, you know, the last line is maybe the most important to me, that we've been warmed by other fires that we have not built. What warmth and light shall we leave behind? I think, um, you know, this is such a moment of despair that we are living in. There is mass despair. There's mass isolation. There's a lot of rage and there's a lot of frustration. And I think, uh, you know, those emotions and that sense of uh, disorganization is actually very convenient for, uh, you know, for, what can I say, for, for evil powers. Uh, and I, what I wanted to say was that we don't 
go back to this history because we want to be good students. We don't go back to this history because it's fun just to learn on its own or because everybody has a lot of time to read. I mean, every time somebody tells me that they've taken the time to read this book, I know that they've given me time that is very dear, that is very precious. That's actually a lot more precious than I think the free time people had available, you know, a, a, a hundred years ago, as hard as people worked then. Um, and, you know, the point of going back to this history is that it's incumbent upon us to think about the work, the sacrifices, the organizing, the building that people have done in order for us to even be where we are today. We owe it to the past. We owe it to the future. We owe it to our survival to be able to think about ourselves within this history because there is no future if we don't. So, uh, you know, I think out of everything that I'm trying to convey in that paragraph that it's, you know, these are not easy paths. They're not uh, automatic. <laughs> they're, you know, they're not always clear cut, but, you know, we should have the strength to engage the messiness of the world with the categories and tools available to us because we must. Uh, so thank you. That was really beautiful. Thank you. Thank you. Can you tell us about Manabendra Nath Roy? Why is he important in the international history of the Mexican Revolution? Sure. Well, uh, Manabendra Nath Roy, or MN Roy, um, as he came to be known, was a, um, a he, he was from India, and he began. I would say his political career, his political consciousness, fighting British colonial rule in India. Um, he came to uh, be someone who traveled in order to get support, money, weapons, leadership, guidance from people in other anti-colonial contexts. And in the chaos of the First World War, he ended up in revolutionary Mexico in 1917. And in his memoirs, he tells this really extraordinary story about Mexico being the land of his rebirth, that it was in Mexico that he discovered internationalism. And he says that part of the process was uh, that he was asked by some comrades, some uh, you know fellow socialists, to write an article for a Mexican audience about the struggle of Indian people against British colonialism. And he said he realized uh, it's one of my favorite metaphors that trying to explain the struggle would be like quote carrying coal to Newcastle. That you know he wouldn't be telling a Mexican audience anything that they weren't already deeply familiar with. And it was in the process, uh, as he writes, of triangulating those experiences that he came to understand that the conditions that he was struggling against in India were global, were generalized, that they were a global class struggle that he was a part of, and he becomes an internationalist. So Roy, you know, I think confounding for some people ends up being one of the founders of the Mexican Communist Party. And uh, he was sent as a delegate uh, representing Mexico to Moscow for one of the meetings of the Comintern. Um, and he actually debates Lenin on this question of the national colonial question. This is, I think, how a lot of people encounter M. N. Roy. Uh, and he says, you know, that there's a formulation and revolutionary theory that says, you know, the most advanced uh 
members of the proletariat are industrial workers from the Western world. But he says, you know, that it's a mistake not to recognize workers under colonial rule, that they have, uh, you know, equivalent consciousness and organizational skills, and they should be recognized as such. And that if revolutionary parties collaborated with petty bourgeois or bourgeois forces in colonial context, that they would just redouble the conditions of colonialism. Um, so... Uh, you know, I think the interesting thing that I talk about in the book is that, you know, this is an incredibly important debate in revolutionary theory and radical theory that, you know, people today are thinking about the relationships between the working class and uh, people in colonial context. But it, it's not as if Roy just took pen to paper, you know, on his way to Moscow. If you look at a number of the articles he was writing during his time in Mexico, uh, if you think about the uh, the materials he was preparing to organize people in um, Mexico, you see that it was out of this triangulation that he's thinking about these very questions, and he brings those uh, to the common turn in these debates with Lenin. So I think he's a really extraordinary figure uh, that not only enhances the way we think about this revolutionary convergence within uh, Mexico, but also like gives us this new trajectory to understand these dramatic debates about capitalism and colonialism as they were happening in the common turn. Who was Ricardo Flores Magón? Can you contextualize him? Ricardo Flores Magón uh, was uh, one of the key organizers, agitators, uh, and a famous journalist during in, in the lead up to the Mexican Revolution and during the Mexican Revolution. He's most remembered for a uh, for I would say two prominent things. One is a uh, a newspaper. Uh, that he was the lead editor of called Regeneración, which was largely um, published in Los Angeles among comrades there. Uh, and in Mexico, he was um, a key leader of something called the PLM, the Partido Liberal Mexicano, uh, which, as I mentioned earlier, was uh, an organization that collaborated with groups across the border, like the industrial workers of the world. Um, but uh, you know, played a key role in organizing opposition in Mexico in the lead up to the revolution. So uh, Flores Magón uh, and uh, at different points, his brother Enrique Flores Magón um, and their friends and comrades uh, were sent into exile because of their organizing in Mexico. They ended up organizing and having really key bases in U.S. cities like uh, El Paso, St. Louis, and most consequently in Los Angeles and East LA, uh, where a lot of my family was from too. Uh, and um, he and his comrade, Labrado Rivera, wrote an open letter. It was called to, uh, I'm going to get the, the name a little wrong, but it was like this open letter to the workers of the world, to the anarchists of the world, uh, as well as to Mexican workers. And, and he puts out all these provocations about how uh, how people around the world are coming to understand uh, their common enemies, how states everywhere are failing, how the legitimacy of the police forces are failing, how people are experiencing extraordinary poverty and depredation. Um, 
and how they should understand their fates as linked and their struggles as connected. And really significantly, this writing and a lot of Flores Magón's writings precede the um, the uh, the Russian Revolution, what we understand as the Russian Revolution, the Bolshevik Revolution. Um, and so these are really extraordinary calls that he's making. And it's because of this essay, as well as, you know, a number of other types of organizing that he's doing, that he is, um, he's arrested and sent first to McNeil Island Penitentiary and then to Leavenworth Federal Penitentiary. So a lot of that chapter that I discussed earlier, how to make a university, really follows his time in that prison. Uh, and there's a beautiful um, uh, quote from an article of his time from McNeil that I think applies to Leavenworth, where they say there wasn't a there wasn't a Mexican worker in that prison that would allow, uh, that wouldn't pick up a shovel or do work for Flores Magón just to give him an easy hour of rest because there was so much admiration for him, who he was in the world, who he was in that prison, how he helped other uh, Mexican prisoners write letters, you know, taught them history, taught them revolutionary theory, and was this real critical part of this university of radicalism that I'm trying to trace in the book. So, you know, Flores Magón pops up as a theorist in the book. He's a historical figure in the book, and I think he's a real anchor for the way that I'm trying to talk about convergent spaces in the book. Can you comment on the history of fashion in the Mexican Revolution. Can you describe the aesthetics of dresses in the Mexican Revolutionary years? How do they highlight and embody themes in your book that you've been telling us about? Sure. Well, I, I have to say at the top that uh, Gabriela Cano's um, writing about gender uh, uh, and in the Mexican Revolution is really foundational for thinking about this question. One of, I, I'm pretty sure you're asking because one of the final chapters in the book is called How to Make a Dress. And the chapter opens with, I thought this very cool vignette of this woman who is having to attend a ball uh, and her charge is to embody Mexico itself. And the woman's name is Elizabeth Catlett. She is perhaps uh, best known as, uh, you know, she's one of the most famous artists, U uh, uh, artists in the US, African-American artist, printmaker, sculptor. Um, and so I tell this story about how she is, in Chicago, you know, going to the homes of all of her friends at the last minute, trying to gather what they imagine are articles to make a quote unquote Mexican dress. Uh, so, you know, she goes to Charles White, who would become her husband, an extremely famous African-American artist. Uh, and he gives her some wax fruit that she puts on her head in the kind of style of like, you know, this Pan-American Carmen Miranda imaginary as if all Mexican women had fruit on their head. Uh, you know, she goes to um, her friend Margaret Burroughs' house and they take the curtains off and tie it around her waist like a skirt. And, uh, you know, I, I thought it was a really interesting example of both that there was a presence of uh 
Mexican women in U.S. popular culture in the early 40s, um, but also these ways that all these radical Black artists in the same period were imagining Mexico. Uh, Catlett went to, go, you know, goes on to spend most of her life in Mexico. She becomes a very famous artist there. Her home becomes uh, a kind of refuge for Black radicals that are escaping uh, repression, McCarthyism, racism in uh, the United States. Um, and so the, you know, the whole chapter is really organized around different ways that she is thinking about the dress, that she's thinking about gendered social relations of capital, that she's thinking with Black domestic workers in Harlem um, about the conditions of their employment and tying it to a global system, uh, you know, and, and how this ends up being a part of her own artwork as she's trying to think about struggles of African-American people and particularly African-American women uh, within the history of the Mexican Revolution. So um, it's a, you know, there's just kind of two distinct questions here. There's, uh, you know, the history of fashion in the Mexican Revolution, I think, is a really dynamic and interesting one. And the history of how this artist comes to engage it or uses the the, the fact of the dress in different contexts as a kind of conduit to think about different radical struggles in the period uh, is, you know, something that I try to do uh, you know, throughout this chapter, how to make a dress. Um, so that's a kind of long story long. As we bring today's dialogue to a close, can you tell us about where your attention and time have gone since completing this book? What are you working on now or next as your current or subsequent research? Sure. Well, as a kind of offshoot from this project, I'm I guess chasing leads that I wasn't fully able to address in this book. One of those leads is about Alan Pinkerton of the famous Pinkerton of the nefarious uh, Pinkerton detective agencies. Um, I've been quite intrigued by the way that he was thinking about internationalism. A lot of my book, uh, a lot of Arise takes you know, uh, as as people say in social history, reads against the grain of formal uh, records of the state. So I go through a lot of police archives and surveillance archives. And it's so fascinating how they think about revolution, uh, global revolution coalescing in ways that I would argue are maybe, you know, greater and more capacious than, than even organizers at the time were, were conceiving. Um, and I think Pinkerton is one of the people that does this in a really dramatic way. You know, in the late 19th century, he's seeing, you know, these strikes across industry, particularly in the railroads. And he's imagining that it's, you know, people coming from the Paris Commune, that it's Irish radicals, it's German socialists, it's, you know, people opposing slavery, that they are all coming together together. Uh, with labor organizers in the United States and that they're, you know, this behemoth uh, op opposing um, U.S. capital. And I think that there's something really interesting there. So that's the kind of, that's, I would just say, the beginning of the next project that I'm trying to work on. Sounds incredible. Thanks. As we bring today's dialogue to a close, I wanted to end by conveying my heartfelt gratitude to you 
for your eloquent and erudite answers, for your generous wisdom and information that you shared with all of us, and also for the sacrifice you underwent during the process of preparing this book for the benefit of all humanity. Thank you on behalf of all your current, present, and future readers for all that you have given to us in this remarkable gem of a book. Oh, <laughs> well, you had me talk for an hour and now I'm at a total loss for words. Uh, it's just, it's been such a joy to talk with you today and to engage with you uh, through this book. I, I, I give you my heartfelt appreciation for its engagement and I, I hope to stay in touch. Thank you. It would be my, would be my honor. Thank you, Ari. As we bring today's dialogue to a close, I'm your host today on the new Books in Latin American Studies podcast, Ari Barbalat. Today, it has been my hallowed honor to engage in a dialogue with Christina Heatherton. She is the Elting Associate Professor of American Studies and Human Rights and Director of the Trinity Social Justice Institute at Trinity College in Hartford, Connecticut. We have been discussing her newly published book, Arise, Global Radicalism in the Era of the Mexican Revolution, published in Berkeley, California by University of California Press 2022. Thank you. Thank you, Ari. <laughs>